Welcome to Preschool and Beyond, a podcast where we tackle some of the most common and the most challenging issues facing preschool-age children and their families. Recording from Discovery Child Development Center is your host, Mike DeLaud. Hi, and welcome to episode 29 of Preschool and Beyond, Let Them Eat Dirt. Our world is getting cleaner and more sanitized every day. Our children are exposed to far less germs than each generation that has come before them. While this has helped protect us from infectious diseases and extended life expectancy, authors Dr. Brett Finlay and Dr. Marie-Claire Arietta make the argument in their book, Let Them Eat Dirt, Saving Your Child from an Over-Sanitized World, that this focus on making the environment as clean and as sterile as possible is leading to a host of new problems. Today, I am pleased to have Dr. Arietta join us to discuss their findings and the implications for our children. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Arietta. Thank you for having me. So parents and educators are usually given the advice you want to keep, you know, your classroom, your home as clean, sanitized as possible. You see wipes everywhere, Purell everywhere. Um, the last thing most of us want to see is our child rolling around, putting dirt or other things in their mouth outside. So what's wrong with this traditional way of thinking that most educators and parents embrace? I know. It, there's been a huge, I would argue, shift in, in uh, the way we value uh, cleanliness. But you're right. It is almost, it feels intuitive that we don't want our, our children to be uh, dirty. And to some degree, I think that is correct. We definitely want to protect our kids too, you know, from diseases. And diseases are transmitted by germs. But we definitely have to uh, find a happy medium here. Because as more research comes out, we understand that one of the main roles of these bacteria and other microbes that we get to live with is to train our immune system. And this is fairly new. This is something that we didn't know uh, only 10 or 15 years ago. Um, so there needs to be a shift in how we view uh, cleanliness and other ways that we encounter microbes. So can we talk a little bit more about these microbes uh, what are they and why are they so important for the body? Yeah, of course. So microbes are uh, forms of, of, you know, living organisms that you cannot see with your naked eye. You need a microscope for that. So that's basically what they are. They, they, they include bacteria. They also include viruses, um, fungi that are microscopic, different forms of life. And we get to live with a huge zoo of them. Most of them live in our intestines and we have given them a name now. They're called the gut microbiome. Um, and uh, this new name has come along uh, new research showing how important they are. So we are born without any microbes, but as soon as we go through the birth canal or, um, you know, through a surgical incision and we're born via C-section, we start encountering all these microbes and they take hold in, in this empty, um, and in, empty intestine that is going to start getting what we call colonized with microbes. So microbes are going to move in there um, and, and, and they're going to stay there for life. And they do a whole bunch of things. They help us digest food. But as we learn more and more from them, we now know that they are involved in communicating with our immune system. And when we're born, we have very naive, if you may, or, or very primitive immune systems and other systems too. And this crosstalk or this communication between microbes and our 
our own immune cells is super important when it comes to how those immune cells are going to behave later on, um, especially during adulthood. So we have all evolved with with this communication with microbes, and it's only in, in the past few generations that that uh, this communication has changed. Not only are we encountering less microbes, we're encountering different kind of microbes, and that is causing consequences. Great, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that. So we've done a great job of eradicating, you know, some of the really um, devastating early childhood diseases and afflictions, but you in the book talk about they've kind of been replaced by what you all call these Western diseases. Um, can you give some examples of what some of those are that have become more prevalent as we've kind of sanitized our environment? Yeah. Um, so they're immune or what we call metabolic in nature. And these include asthma and all different types of allergies, obesity, diabetes, both diabetes type one and type two, um, other autoimmune diseases like lupus and, and multiple sclerosis and also autism as well as one of uh, the neurological disorders that, that, that have, that have increased dramatically in the past few generations. And, and, um, the more we learn about it, we understand that this this uh, correlation that exists between a decrease in infectious diseases, like you were saying before. So we, thanks to vaccination and antibiotics, very few people, at least in the Western world, die from infectious diseases. Uh, you know, you name it tuberculosis or missiles or or mumps. Uh, but at the same time, there's been, there's been this increase or this spike in those Western diseases that I just mentioned. And and the more research that comes in, the more we understand that this is not just merely an association, but that as we clean up our world to rid ourselves from these really difficult and dangerous diseases, we have inadvertently uh, killed a whole bunch of other microbes uh, as a collateral damage type of way. And that has um, that has had consequences in terms of how our immune system and our metabolism is, is now acting differently and is becoming more prone to developing some of these diseases. Great. One thing I see a lot as a preschool director and parents ask about a lot, um, virtually every classroom has a peanut allergy. Oh, yeah, um, we talked sure. about how, like, you know, when I was growing up, you may have had one child in the whole school that may have had one. And now yeah. some classrooms have six kids. Um, would that tie into this as well? For sure. Food allergies is one of the, the, the diseases or the syndromes that are, that are increasing at a really, really high pace. I, I sometimes do a public um, talks in, in schools to teachers about this topic. And, and I was talking to, um, to a principal of a public school here and he's almost close to retiring. He's been at it for a long time and he's saying that he's seen this change, um, with things, for example, one of the, one of the common lost and found items that he sees now are inhalers for asthmatics, something that was very rare. You would have a couple of asthmatics in, in, in the school, but but definitely it's just so, so common that, that so many kids are being prescribed inhalers and EpiPens as well. Um, so there's a huge increase in food allergies and allergies in general. Another thing, um, when you were kind of talking about what can we do as a society to help protect us from these different conditions, uh, one thing that you emphasize in the book is getting children outside. And that's something that we've talked a lot about in the podcast. You know, there's a variety of reasons why it's good for kids. 
Um, yeah. From kind of from your perspective and um, with our topic today, what are some of the benefits for children going outside and playing? Yeah, for sure. And it comes down, I guess, my, my perspective com- comes down to encountering more microbes, right? You're going to encounter more microbes if you go outside and go for a hike in, you know, a mountain nearby, or if you go swimming in a lake, or if you just go to the playground, then if you just stay home and play video games, not even taking into account all the other benefits um, that, that a child is going to gain by being outside and playing outdoors. But yes, a child will encounter more microbes, it will get dirtier. And, and we argue that this will be healthier for their immune system as well. So when they come back in, most of our first instinct is to either wash their hands or grab the Purell. Um, yeah. That's a mistake though, right? It, it can be. So here's the thing. And we, we've known there's a lot of research that has been going on um, on uh, washing our hands. So hand washing is one of the things that have been um you know, better studied in terms of, of public health. It's really effective, we know, if we do it before we eat, after we use the washroom, if we're sick, um, if we have been in contact with someone that is sick, or if we have been in contact with something that is um, rotting. So, and we've known this for the longest time. And those continue to be really effective measures to, to wash our hands. If we have been outside playing and we're going to go inside to grab some food, then yeah, I agree that it makes sense to wash our hands. But just washing our hands because our hands are dirty um, does not make any sense. And actually, it's been shown that it doesn't, it doesn't lead to, to, to reducing our chance of, of getting an infectious disease, right? So you mm-hmm. kind of have to use common sense knowing what we already know and what has been taught for decades in schools about washing our hands. Uh, it seems that now we do go a little bit overboard. In my view, and, and basing it on what it's known um, from from um, from experiments that have been done on on Purell and other you know alcohol alcohol based um, cleaners they're really not more effective than plain old soap and water. Mm-hmm. And when I say soap, I mean antibacterial free soap. So the, the, the soaps that, that are old school soaps, if, if you want to call it. So you only need regular plain old school soap and water to wash your hands. I don't think there is a need in our society to use Purell or any other brands of, of the same product. Uh, unless, of course, let's say you're going camping or you do not have access to soap and water. Most places do have access. There are exceptions to this, of course. And one of them could be a daycare facility or a kindergarten class. It does make sense when you have 20, 30 children and, you know, it is this now the beginning of, of winter and half of them are going to have a, a cold at any point. So now we're talking about something else. We're talking about disease prevention. We want to avoid these children from getting sick. And that still makes sense. Um, So make them wash their hands with soap and water. If that is not available for whatever reason, yeah, for sure, use one of these um, waterless um, disinfectants. Great. And I think it's definitely good to just emphasize again that those antibacterial soaps that kill 99.999, whatever germs are not good for kids. Um, I remember a few years ago, we, you know, usually make big supply runs and Sam's has lots of office supplies that we need for our preschool. And I couldn't find a single soap that wasn't 99.99 antibacterial. I remember calling the company, the local, they had me call the national headquarters. And um, I think now you are seeing a movement away from those soaps. 
Yeah, that's true. Um, so for, for a number of reasons, but, but you're right, it's really hard and it's not just soap. So antimicrobial or antibacterial is um, a word or a category that will sell more product. And, and our marketing strategists, they, they know this. So they try, whether it's soap or or potentially shampoo or even socks, um, they try to Hello. use that to sell more, more of their product. We really do not need to live in, in, in an antibacterial world. And, and, and we argue that it's, that it's actually detrimental, especially when we're children. But it is hard. I mean, the same goes for toothpaste. I did not know until a few years ago that most toothpastes have triclosan, for example. It's really hard not to find a toothpaste without triclosan. And triclosan, for, for a number of, of reasons, have been um, have been banned in different countries, including uh, many countries in Europe and in, in Canada, it's in the process of... of um, of not allowing triclosan in, in several products and the same thing with the FDA in the US. But it, it's really hard to p- find products that do not have uh, triclosan still to this day. So another area I think that can help our children um, develop in a healthy way is diet. And you talk about that um, a good amount in your book. So what foods do you recommend that children eat to, for um, optimal health? Yeah, well, I would say that that the first thing is to um, start by by grasping the concept of what are these bacteria doing there. The main reason why we get to live with this huge amount of bacteria there is that we feed them. It's kind of like having an an inner pet, if you may. You're feeding them, and that's the only reason that they're there. And they're going to find ways of metabolize whatever types of food um, you they can. With that said, there's been a huge change in uh, in what we what humans eat, at least in the Western world, in the past 100 years. And and the bacteria that that humans used to live with before that were really good at metabolizing fiber and um, sugars that come from plants. And that has changed dramatically. So most of the grains that we consumed, they're, they're processed in a way um, that the, the fiber component is, is really, really reduced. Um, the same thing with the amount of, um, of, of plants or, or vegetables and, and fruits and other sorts of, of fibers that we eat. And the same thing goes for fermented foods. So about three generations ago, not every household had a refrigerator. It was very odd for that to happen. Now everyone has a fridge, of course, and this is how we preserve food. But before this, we used to use a lot more natural ways of, of preserving food, including fermented foods. That, that, that is, you know, adding, adding microorganisms of microbes to food so that we can eat them later. Uh, pickled vegetables and sauerkrauts and all these things come to mind. And that has changed dramatically. So one of the ways that you can um, harbor or that you can prompt for a better microbiome, uh, one that is more associated with health outcomes is by increasing the amount of fiber, especially when we're children, and also by introducing these fermented foods in, in the forms of, you know, um, yogurt or, or kefir and uh, other ones like, like sauerkraut and pickled vegetables and kombucha and all, and all, these, and all these different ways that, that we have used traditionally to preserve foods. How about those in, you go into a supermarket or some other health food stores, you'll see all different types of probiotics right now. Um, would you recommend 
that children uh, consume those or, you know, are those benefits overstated? Um, they are. And the reason for that and the reason why it's really hard to recommend probiotics, at least for the healthy population, is that probiotics are not regulated at all. So when if I wanted to put out um, a, a probiotic product in the market, I do not need to, both in Canada and in the United States, I do not need to show that they are effective. The only thing that I need to show is that they're safe. And it's a lot easier to show that they're safe. So when you go into the supermarket or to the health store, you will not know the good products from the bad products. Even if you're an expert in probiotics, I have colleagues that have spent, you know, decades studying probiotics and they know of a couple of products that are good. But if they go into one of these scenarios, it will be really hard for them to determine which ones work from the ones that don't. So it's really hard given the scenario of probiotics to just go ahead and say, yes, we recommend probiotics. With that said, there are good products out there. There are good products that have been tested, especially for particular conditions. Um, but in general, I I prefer to just consume probiotics in a more natural way. I, I eat kefir daily. I get that, give that to my kids and I incorporate um, pickled or, or preserved vegetables into their diet. Great. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, people talk about the five second rule when food falls on the floor. And I know research has shown that, you know, it does pick up bacteria within those five seconds. But from your perspective, is that a bad thing? And when is it okay to let them eat food off the floor? And when should we avoid it? Yeah. And and to me, this comes down to what I like to call uh, microbe common sense. It really depends on when when that happens. If um, I have kids, so if I'm with my kids and I'm at the mall or at a metro station or in a bus or in any other place where there's a lot of people, no, I would put the, the you know, whatever object fell from their mouths away and I will wash it with regular soap and water when I get home and then I'll give that back to them. But if I'm at home or at someone else's home and I know that, you know, no one has a horrible disease there or if I'm out walking or hiking and something falls, I'm comfortable just scruffing or, or getting rid of, of, of the big chunks of, of uh, dirt or whatever and then putting it right back um, so that to me is what makes sense we know that places that are frequented by a lot of people that is where where your your risk of disease goes high but if you're out in a, in a place that is more controlled in the sense that you know who's there um, that, that there's, there's a less uh, less density of people or like, like out in, 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 the, in the outdoors then I, I would argue that you can do it When our children are sick, you know, a lot of people are always pushing to get that antibiotic. It can be hard to have your child home from school or just see them suffering. Uh, I know we are overprescribed antibiotics in our society. So under what circumstances do you really want to get them those antibiotics? And what sort of situations do you see that they're being overprescribed today? Well, antibiotics are being extremely overprescribed. So, for example, it's it's been calculated that the 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 number of the percentage of antibiotics prescription that are given to kids that have a viral infection and antibiotics do not work for viral infections is about sixty percent. 
of kids that get antibiotics for viral infections only. So they are tremendously overprescribed. And, you know, we're talking about dirt and, and, and exposures here uh, outside by, go, by going out. Those are all good, but nothing will affect your microbiome growing up as taking antibiotics. So yes, antibiotics are a blessing and they will save your life if you have a nasty bacterial condition, uh, infection, but but the odds are that you do not have one. So um, things are changing and pediatricians are getting better at not over-prescribing antibiotics and using what they call a, a watch and wait approach, especially for common children ailments like like um, ear infections, which are really, really common the first five years of life. So it used to be that if a child showed up at a doctor's office or at an emergency room with uh, ear pain, they would just give them antibiotics right away. Now they know that antibiotics do not come without second, you know, effects, secondary effects. So they like to wait um, 24 to 48 hours, and it's really hard to see a child suffering, of course. So they, they would recommend that you give them Tylenol and ibuprofen and or ibuprofen back to back to try to lessen um, those symptoms. But odds are 8 out of 10 kids with ear infections, those are going to be viral infections. So the watch and wait approach works. Uh, the only time where it's not recommended is for babies that are really young. Uh, and in that case, yes, there's no no other way but to give an antibiotic. But there's there's ways that you can that you can try and be more selective. And doctors are trying to to study this more to see when you can be more selective when giving antibiotics. How about those um, like creams and ointments for cuts? Are there risks for giving those to children, or is um, that something different? Um, it is and it isn't. Of course, it's not going to have the same effect if you have a little bit of polysporin or a cut uh, than having a, an antibiotic, whether it's injected or, or, in a pill, or in a pill form. Putting the ointment is not going to have such a huge effect. With that, what, with that said, there has been studies showing that it is really not necessary to cure uh, a small injury. So if your child has a scratch, keep that uh, wound clean um, and covered at the beginning, then let it air. So it's really not uh, effective into preventing an infection. So going back to the antibacterial in soap, do you really need it? Outside that you don't, of course, if the wound is deep, uh, you, you, you need to have it looked at, then in some cases, yeah, you do, you, you do need antibiotics, ointments or, or, or another form of, of antibiotic or antiseptic. But for the most part, if you just keep cleaned, um, the injury clean, then you're okay. Great. Let's talk about pets for a little bit. Uh, so we do have, uh, my wife and I have a two-year-old dog that my four-year-old adores and is always um, next to the dog. The dog is licking him. Um, they're all over each yeah. other. And, you know, my wife usually is like, you know, don't let the dog lick your face. But um, yeah. after reading your book, it sounds like my son kind of has the right approach. Is that, um, should we yeah. be encouraging that? For sure. 
Definitely. And that's one thing that we can encourage. I mean, first things first, make sure that your dog has a clean bill of health and that it visits the vet every year to just make sure that it doesn't have uh, some nasty infections because some dogs can carry them and then can be transmitted to humans. But the average pet, the average healthy pet, it's actually really, really healthy, according to many studies. And this is in the the asthma and allergy field, showing that if um, there is kids growing up with dogs that go outside, so not just indoor pets, but dogs that go outside, that really decreases the risk of developing allergies. And the idea is that dogs, just like your dog is doing with, with your kid, dogs really want to be next to you. And especially with kids, they're kind of like at the same height. So they're always licking them and, the, uh-huh. and they're transferring microbes to these kids. So this is why we think you see this effect in, in the studies that look at um, exposure, uh, different exposures, including pet exposures. Great. Um, so in one other area that, um, you know, it can be controversial with people is vaccines. And um, how does how do vaccines tie into the overall microbes and um, health of the child? Yes, well, it it does in in direct and indirect ways. As opposed to antibiotics, vaccines are um, very specific strategies to try and avoid the infection with that particular microbe, whether it's a virus or whether it's a bacteria. So when you get a vaccine for, let's say, polio and a couple more bugs, you're going to be protected for those bugs. When you take an antibiotic, on the other hand, this is going to be like a bomb that happens and then you're going to be killing a whole bunch of different guts and, and odds are that you're going to need most of them. Um, so on, on, on that sense, vaccines are a way a better and more specific approach to try and avoid infection, which is what we definitely want to do. Um, I mean, the, the way we see it, we have been studying infections for um, a couple hundred years now. They are inherent to human life and society. And there are some agents that will um, change, you know, their genes and find different ways to infect humans. And, and some of these infections can be really nasty. And vaccines have been the only measure that scientists have, have, um, have found to try and avoid them. So there's really no, no, to me, no, no avoiding or no, no way of avoiding these infections. And because of that, vaccines are the safest, safest measures to do that. The other thing that, that you have to take into account with vaccines is that um, for something like uh, the whooping cough, for example, if your child develops a whooping cough, yes, whooping cough is not like polio, your child will likely recover from whooping cough, likely, I say, because in some cases, especially very young children, they actually succumb to, to whooping cough. Uh, you have to give really strong doses of antibiotics to someone that has whooping cough. There's no way around it, right? So what would you rather take? And, and this it really comes down to an odds game. The very slim risk of developing a, a side effect from a vaccination, or like in some places, especially in, in, in the North American Northwest, um, the really uh, high chances of your child developing or contracting whooping cough and then having to take a really nasty antibiotics afterward. For me, it was it was really a no-brainer when it came to assessing risk that vaccines were the safest uh, and most effective way of going for that. Great. And so we should all be getting our flu shots as well. 
Yeah, and that, this is for another reason. I mean, for, for flu, flu is the virus, you wouldn't be getting antibiotics. But I am a proponent of vaccination. And I, I, I do take my flu shot every year. I think it is effective, not just for our own benefit, because, you know, odds are that you and I are healthy people. And you, even if we get the flu, we're going to be okay. There's, there's a lot of immunocompromised children and older people that cannot take the vaccine. So we kind of owe it to the rest of society to try and protect them from, from nasty diseases. And people die from the flu every year because of that. So you've given a lot of great recommendations today for families. Um, so specifically for preschool age children, are there anything else that you would uh, recommend to parents to help children have that healthy balance of microbes in their body? For sure. And and to me, it really comes down to education and learning more about microbes. We don't really, you know, learn this in, in school or in or in high school. So it's up to us parents to become more informed as to which, you know, microbes are 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 not uh, bad for you and which ones are. And and the only way of, of doing that is by educating yourself. Um, we with that purpose, we wrote a book about this. So that would be our first recommendation to either their buyer book, which is called Let Them Eat Dirt, or even go in our website that has a lot of information, even if you don't buy the book, and that is um, letthemeatdirt.com. So starting there, and, and then as we were saying throughout the show, um, really focusing on a healthy diet to try and grow the best microbes that you can, and being less worried about child cleanliness uh, at, at a given times. So I think those are two things that, that as a parent, you, you really have a say. All right, so the book is Let Them Eat Dirt by Dr. Brett Finlay and Dr. Marie-Claire Arrieta. Uh, we'll link to it on our page. And I thought this was a really fascinating read. Uh, you know, it just taught me so many things that I had no idea before. And as I said, you know, we've grown up in this way thinking that we need all these different products to sanitize our world. But um, it's really worth checking out. So I will... Um, have that on our show notes page. And I want to especially thank Dr. Arietta for coming on today and sharing all this great information with our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. You can find that link uh, on our show notes page at www.discoverychilddevelopmentcenter.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash preschool and beyond. Uh, thanks for listening today. And we will see you again in two weeks.